You're listening to Asbury University's Chapel Podcast, recorded live from our campus in Wilmore, Kentucky. Asbury's Chapel Service hosts speakers from around the world to inspire academic excellence and spiritual vitality. We hope you enjoy today's message. I want to share with you guys a few of my favorite words. There are three words that have helped me to stay true to my calling, have helped kind of recalibrate my compass when I've gotten tired or discouraged or confused or whatever it may be. I think that they're good words that you can apply to any kind of creative work, which a word about creativity, a soapbox that I have that some people are just like, Andrew, let it go and I can't stop, is our use of the word creatives to describe artistic people. I don't know if you guys know what I'm talking about, but people will say, yes, I, I was hanging out with a, a group of creatives or this is a conference for creatives and uh, and I just don't like that language because everyone is creative it, it makes it sound like artists are the only people that are creative when I actually strongly believe that creativity is one of the ways that we bear out the image of God and that applies to everyone mathematicians and scientists and school teachers and pastors are just as creative as songwriters the arts actually a, a friend of mine pointed this out he was like the arts actually just make up a small slice of the pie of what it means to be creative my wife would never describe herself as an artist but she has created the most beautiful place on the planet earth to me in our home in Nashville and uh, she created in a sense our children to call yourself a creative isn't super helpful Uh, get a little more specific I don't really know exactly I get the fact that artists are a little bit weird um, sometimes and that it would be helpful to have a word for that I want to push back sometimes at some of the the language that we adopt without really thinking it through and uh, that's one and so if you're in any kind of creative work whether it's being a pastor or a songwriter or a poet or a school teacher I think these words can be helpful. So uh, first, a word about words. Words are so important. I love words. I've always loved words. I grew up in the church. My dad was a pastor, and so I often was trying to think of things to do during his sermons. Most of the time, my brother and I sat on the back row, um, and, and the way that I, I uh, spent my time during church was uh, filling out fake names on the visitor information cards. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, cr- coming up with really grown-up looking ways of writing things so that uh, it was, I thought of it as my ministry to the elder who had to do the follow-up calls that week. But often I would look through the hymn book. There, there was always a hymn book and I would flip through the hymn book and I would read through the lyrics of these hymns. I was very fascinated by like the, I was, uh, I don't know if, uh, comforted maybe, maybe is the word, by the structure of them. I just loved the fact that there was this like really clear kind of structure to, this, to the hymns. The way the rhymes worked was really solid, you know, and uh, anyway, I just would flip through them constantly. So it was like my my love for words was partly shaped by reading old hymns and uh, Shel Silverstein poems together, those kind of things mashed up together into who I am in some ways anyway. But I, I love words. I remember sitting in eighth grade and, uh, and my English teacher, Miss Robert, kind of started the class by saying, I love words. I think it's good to ruminate on words. And, uh, and I want to tell you my favorite word. My favorite word is edify. And she wrote the word edify on the chalkboard. And uh, she was like, I like what it means, but I just also like the sound of it. I like the fact that edify sounds like what it is. And we all said edify. And I remember in, like after the class, you know, like um, just being by myself and saying to myself edify and savoring, savoring the word. Annie Dillard, is a, is a wonderful author. She wrote a book called Pilgrim at Tinker Creek, which is one of my favorite books. Uh, and she, in the book, says somewhere that she thinks the most beautiful word in the English language is sycamore. 
and, and she's not wrong. Sycamore is a wonderful word. Everybody say it. It feels great rolling off the tongue, doesn't it? I don't know if you're the kind of person who's never thought about this before. A lot of people don't really think about the fact that words have this, like, wonderful uh, potency to them, you know? You can kind of hold them in your mouth like a sip of wine, not that you guys would ever be allowed to do that. Anyway. So anyway, my favorite word for years has been the word confluence. <laughs> for some reason, every time I see the word confluence show up in, in a book, I just say confluence. I like to hold the word confluence in my mouth. There's a, there's a creek near my house that uh, is the confluence of Indian Creek and Mill Creek. And when I stand there and I look at it, I love the fact that it looks like what it sounds like. Uh, confluence is a good word. Um, let me think about another one. Well, let me, let me share this with you. Before I move on to this, uh, does anybody here have a favorite word? I'm just curious. Anybody brave enough to throw out? Anybody ever thought about this before? Yeah? Dwell. Dwell, Dwell is a good word. It sounds like a Christian coffee house. Yeah. Uh, anybody else? Yeah. Whoa, what did you say? Biblioteca? Oh, library, right? Is that right? I thought you said the cool bodega, and I was like, that sounds like a Christian, Christian dance club. I don't know. Uh, yeah, that's a good one. It looks like what it is, doesn't it? You can be in a foreign country, and like, it's not far off from like, uh, the way you say Bible or, or uh, library in Sweden, even like places like that. Uh, anybody else? One more. Anybody? Magnanimous. Magnanimous. Nice. That is a good one. Magnanimous. I'm going to say that later. Anyway, so there, just to drive home the point, uh, just for fun, I, somebody sent me this letter that, um, that I thought was just totally delightful um, that was written by a guy who was applying for a job as a screenwriter in Hollywood. And he, this was his, uh, his letter of application. Uh, it's really short, but it says this. Dear sir, I like words. I like fat, buttery words such as ooze, turpitude, glutinous, toady. I like solemn, angular, creaky words such as straight-laced, cantankerous, pecunious, valedictory. I like spurious, black-as-white words such as mortician, liquidate, tonsorial, dimimond. I like suave V words such as svengali, svelte, bravura, verve. I like crunchy, brittle, crackly words such as splinter, grapple, jostle, crusty. I like sullen, crabbed, scowling words such as skulk, glower, scabby, churl. I like, oh heavens, my gracious, land's sake words like Trixie, Tucker, Genteel, horrid. I like elegant, flowery words such as estivate, peregrinate, elysium, halcyon. I like wormy, squirmy, mealy words such as crawl, blubber, squeal, drip. I like sniggly, chuckling words such as cowlick, gurgle, bubble, and burp. I like the word screenwriter better than copywriter. So I decided to quit my job in a New York advertising agency and try my luck in Hollywood. But before taking the plunge, I went to Europe for a year of study, contemplation, and horsing around. I have just returned, and I still like words. May I have a few with you. Sincerely, Robert Parash. Isn't that amazing? Clearly, he got the job. Yeah. And he went on and won like five Academy Awards and was this huge deal in Hollywood back in the day. But I love the fact that it just reminds me of the power of words. So here are three good words I want to share with you guys that are some of my favorite words in the world that I say to myself to remind myself who I am, who God is, and what my calling is here on earth. So the first word is eucatastrophe. Uh, it's just, it's the word catastrophe with E-U at the beginning of it. 
Anybody ever heard this word before? Okay, it's kind of a weird one. It was coined by this guy named J.R.R. Tolkien, who wrote The Lord of the Rings, obviously. And uh, back in, I think, the 30s, he, did a, he delivered a, a lecture at St. Andrews in Scotland, and it was uh, called On Fairy Stories. And this was, I think, after The Hobbit, but before he had published The Lord of the Rings. I can't, I don't remember the timeline exactly, but clearly he had been thinking about storytelling for a long time. And Tolkien was a, a true believer. He was, a, he was a Christian and uh, had this very theological way of looking at fairy tales in particular, but stories in general and how they work on us. And it's a great essay. If You should Google it and find it somewhere um, if you are interested at all in, in Tolkien or in the idea of storytelling and theology. It's really great the way he gets at it. Uh, but he coins this word eucatastrophe in there. And, uh, and basically it means a good catastrophe. So if a catastrophe is when everything is going great and then suddenly it falls apart, a eucatastrophe in a story is when everything gets progressively worse and uh, is falling apart more and more and, every, and the chaos is growing. And then at the end of the story, there's this moment when everything is made right in one fell swoop. Okay, that's eucatastrophe. So Tolkien calls it uh, when everything that is sad becomes untrue, right? Um, and Tolkien is a great example. He, he knew this. He was writing his story this way. The end of The Lord of the Rings is that way. Like if you have read the book or seen the movie, uh, the conclusion, you know, the, the climax of the story, it just can't seem much worse than Frodo failing in his mission, which he does. He, he fails in his mission. And even Samwise can't help him in that moment. Um, and so I'm assuming that everybody here has at least some familiarity with The Lord of the Rings. But um, one, one opinion that I have that I haven't completely worked out, but, and, and I could be wrong about it, but I think of The Lord of the Rings this way, that the, the real hero of The Lord of the Rings is a lot of people, you know, your first impulse is to think, well, it's Frodo. And then people are like, ah, it's not Frodo. Who is it? Samwise. And I think, ah, it's not Samwise. It's God. Uh, there are so many times in The Lord of the Rings when Gandalf says to Frodo, we have to trust basically the writer of the story. Um, I don't kill Gollum because I feel like pity. Yeah, we, we need to pity him. We can't, we can't take the end of the story into our own hands. We've got to trust the maker, right? There's this, there's this theme of trusting in providence, a.k.a. the author of the story, to work everything out for good somehow, even when it doesn't make any sense. And then at the end of the story, the hero of the story fails in his mission, and, and who ends up destroying the ring? Gollum. Because the author of the story wrote into the story that even though humans or hobbits are frail and aren't able to withstand this terrible thing, Providence, the author of the story, is still going to make it right. He's still going to make this thing right, even though you can't see a good ending. Um, catastrophe is basically, when I was writing the Wingfeather Saga, I, I experienced this firsthand many times. I was trying my hardest to, to make the characters in the story feel like there was no way out. Uh, one, one author friend of mine or somewhere said that when you write a story, basically what you do is you chase your main character up a tree and then you throw rocks at him uh, to see how he's going to get out, right? So as the author of the story, you've got to have this conflict. You've got to have something for the character to overcome or nobody's going to care about it as a story. So, uh, so when I was writing the story, I, I kept asking myself, how do I put... Jan or Igaby, uh in a corner so that he can't, he has to like find a way out, right? So that I, as the author of a story, I've got to surprise him with a way out of where, where he is. Does that make sense? Um, and then the other side of that is that you, as the author of the story, are trying as hard as you can to write the story in a way that makes you, the reader, 
not know how this is going to end, right? You want to surprise the reader. One of the things that keeps you reading is you're like, how are they going to get out of this tree that uh, the author has been throwing rocks at them in all this time, right? So, uh, so you catastrophe is that moment when the author gets to lift the veil and say, look what I had in mind all along, right? It's this beautiful thing. So a great example is, uh, is the Battle of Helm's Deep. I'm getting super nerdy here, but in the Battle of Helm's Deep, when uh, you know, all the good guys are trapped in this, this uh, Helm's Deep, you know, this valley in the mountains sort of, and the orc army has like come over the hill and they've surrounded everybody. They fought through the night, everybody's exhausted, and the bad guys just keep coming. And they think, well, all we can do is keep fighting, what the elves call the long defeat. You keep fighting even though you know you can't win. And, uh, and then in the movies, they do it so well when they think all hope is lost, they look up and they see Gandalf on Shadowfax, crest the hill, the sun breaks the horizon, the sunlight stabs the orcs in the eyes, they all go, Rrr! and then all of a sudden the riders of Rohan come pouring over the hill and they you know, crash into them like a wave. It's amazing. Like you can't, you feel a physical reaction right in your body when you see this happen. So Tolkien is getting at the fact that uh, there's something about the way we were made and about the way this, the world is made, something about the heart of God that is, rings true when we see the rider on the white horse crest the hill, when all hope is lost and all of a sudden light conquers darkness. There's something in us that responds to that. Uh, there's another great video that, one of these days I'm gonna find it on YouTube, but somebody sent it to me a while ago and it's uh, Avengers Endgame, if you guys have seen that movie. Uh, I, I kind of love that movie and at the end of it, do you, I don't wanna spoil anything for anybody, but when there's a moment of you catastrophe that happens at the end of Endgame, you know what I'm talking about? And there's a, there's a somebody had the, their video camera on in the movie theater uh, on opening weekend and they were recording that moment when all of a sudden there was this sort of resurrection and all of a sudden the good guys returned and you could hear the, the, the whole theater is cheering. They're all like rejoicing because guess what? Resurrection is written into the story of the universe. And when we see it, our bodies respond. Uh, so uh, just in closing this word, eucatastrophe. So keep your eyes peeled for eucatastrophe. Um, I would argue uh, that it's important to keep your eyes peeled for eucatastrophe, not just in stories that you're experiencing, but in your own story. Uh, that happened to me about a year ago. Um, I was going through, my wife and I were going through a really tough season, not with each other, but through in some circumstances that we were in, where we just couldn't, couldn't see a way out of some, some uh, relational situations that we were in. And we were, it was really heavy and hard, and we were just like, gosh, we just need some kind of hope. And uh, we invited our kids over to our house for dinner. And uh, my, uh, so our three kids and then their spouses, they were, they were all over to our house for dinner. And we were just kind of filling them in on what was going on and telling them about this heavy season that we were in. And I said something like, I just need some kind of hope uh, because I'm, I feel so discouraged. My son prayed for us. And at the end of the prayer, you know, I was wiping my eyes and kind of like crying. And, uh, and my daughter-in-law, Natalie, she raised her hand and she goes, I'm pregnant. And uh, we, sorry, we leapt to our feet and danced. Like we danced in the living room and we got a picture of us all pointing at our tummy. Like there's a baby in there. We had no idea. Like it was just complete surprise. It was Gandalf cresting the hill at Helm's Deep. This unlooked for hope. And in, in our story, we experienced a sudden joyous turn. There was suddenly literally new life in a story that we thought was over. Does that make sense? Um, so uh, Tolkien argues in his essay on fairy stories that the great eucatastrophe of, of the history of the universe, of the cosmos, is the incarnation. 
It's the moment when Jesus smuggled himself into the world in the form of this baby, right? Uh, there were plenty of prophecies in the Old Testament that pointed at the coming of a Messiah. And then when it happened, it caught everybody completely off guard. <laughs> uh, the sudden joyous turn of the history of the world is, is God putting on flesh and dwelling among us. And then Tolkien said, if you zoom in on the incarnation story, the story of Jesus, there is another eucatastrophe. What is the eucatastrophe? What is the sudden joyous turn in the story of Jesus? It's the resurrection. Uh, the resurrection of the Son of God, right? When things could not have gotten any worse, none of the apostles could imagine a real future, right? Even though Jesus multiple times said in the, in the Gospels, uh, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men, will suffer death, and will rise again on the third day. Like, he was so explicit about what was coming, their imaginations were too small to grasp it. And so then when it happened, they were like, we had no idea. Until later, of course, they put it together, and they were like, oh, yeah, that's right. He'd been telling us about this the whole time. The hero of the story is the author of the story. So, eucatastrophe. It's a good word. Don't forget that one. So the next word I want to share with you that I love is, um, is the word seinsucht. It's a German word. Uh, S -E, if you're writing this down, S-E-H-N-S-U-C-H-T. I think that's how you say it. Uh, seinsucht. And it's a word that uh, is associated with C.S. Lewis a lot. He's the one who first kind of popularized the word. I love uh, C.S. Lewis's writing. Um, and he has a book called Surprised by Joy. I don't know if any of you guys have ever read it, but it's his memoir. He wrote it late in his life, uh, kind of about the story of how he came to know Jesus, basically. And if you know C.S. Lewis's story at all, you will know that he was an atheist and uh, just like this really uh, snobby atheist and looked down his nose at Christians for a lot of his youth and even on into his days at Oxford and, uh, and then finally became a Christian partly because of Tolkien. Um, he was on a walk with Tolkien and this other friend of theirs in Oxford and they were having this late night conversation about myth. Um, some of you guys may know the story. And, and C.S. Lewis was saying, yeah, the story of Jesus is just another myth. It's like uh, the story of Balder or, you know, all these, all these myths that Lewis grew up reading. He loved the, the story of a, a dying and resurrecting God. Um, and they, he was like, yeah, the Jesus story is just another one of those stories. And Tolkien said, yes, it is another one of these sto those stories with one huge difference uh, in that it actually happened. It actually entered history. The myth entered into history. And that got into C.S. Lewis's mind. And uh, not long after that, he was finally forced to admit that Jesus was God and, uh, and became a Christian. So anyway, I, I love the fact that Tolkien played into C.S. Lewis's thing. But when C.S. Lewis looked back at his life uh, and the story of how he became a Christian, he noticed that there were quite a few moments that, uh, where he described this feeling of this stab of uh, longing this feeling of inconsolable longing that was often created by something that he saw or read or heard. Um, he would hear a piece of music and he would feel in his heart some tug that he couldn't make sense of. Uh, he was reading a, a book called Siegfried and the Twilight of the Gods, illustrated by Arthur Rackham. And there was something about the illustrations in this book that when he was a young man, when he was a boy maybe, he just dwelt on them and he felt something happen inside of him. He couldn't figure out. So when he finally became a Christian, he looked back and he said that all of those moments were moments of longing, uh, like breadcrumbs kind of scattered along the path. And those breadcrumbs eventually led him to Jesus himself. So as a songwriter... Part of the thing that got me into being a songwriter was those moments when I was driving down the road listening to a song and I felt that stab of joy. 
in my heart. Some this, tears would spring to my eyes, and I would be like, why am I crying right now? Uh, why is this song getting to me? I can't make sense of it. Uh, I mentioned this in chapel yesterday, but there's a lyric I wrote that gets to the heart of it, which it says, even in, even in the days when I was young, there seemed to be a song beyond the silence. Uh, and that's how I experienced art as a kid. When I watched movies, when I read comic books, when I whatever, there seemed to be something kind of like brimming on the other side of it. And every time, it, every now and then it would break through and I would feel something in myself. So it's important to pay attention to those moments of longing. Uh, because what you're really longing for in those moments is this person named Jesus, the author of the story. And so pay attention to that. There's a, another author I love named Frederick Beekner, who was, uh, yeah, just, um, he died last year, I guess. And uh, I don't agree with everything he said, uh, but that's true of every author. So he, uh, but he was a believer and he wrote a lot about this idea of listening to your life. Uh, pay attention to your life. Uh, if one of the wonderful things about being a songwriter is that I have permission to pay attention to my life and really sit down and dig into it and try to understand the story that God is telling in my life. And if you do that, uh, you can see his hand at work, right? And for me, a lot of times that has been moments where I felt that rush of tears um, that I had to ask myself, why am I crying? If you are in a situation where you're crying without knowing why, where some story or poem or song or sermon is making something in you resonate or vibrate, uh, don't just let that go by. Try to figure out what's going on there. Uh, because chances are it's one of those breadcrumbs that's going to lead you to the heart of Christ. I really believe that longing is one of the clearest calls that he has uh, to us, um, those moments of longing. So sehnsucht is the word. It's an untranslatable German word for an inconsolable longing. Um, I have been uh, following Jesus for uh, the entirety of my adult life. And uh, the older I get, the more I long for him. Uh, the more I long to see all things made new. Uh, every time I turn on the news, I long for him. Um, yeah, so that's all I'll say to that. Uh, the, the last thing I, um, I would add to the Sainsuk conversation is there's a, um, there's a prayer in a book called Every Moment Holy. Anybody out there know about Every Moment Holy? Okay, a few of you. It's a, it's a book uh, written by Douglas McKelvey, who's a dear friend of mine in um, the Rabbit Room, the ministry I'm with. We have a publishing house, and uh, they publish Every Moment Holy. So there are now three volumes of liturgies uh, for everyday moments. So Doug wrote a liturgy for beekeeping, uh, and a liturgy for changing diapers, and a liturgy for campfires, a liturgy for stargazing, all these wonderful everyday moments that he writes these prayers for to remind us that God is present even then, that these are all potentially signposts to the coming kingdom. And uh, one, of the, uh, one of the liturgies is a liturgy uh, before taking the stage. And the band and I, whenever we're on tour, we try to read it backstage right before we go on to remind ourselves what we're doing. Um, I almost have the whole thing memorized, uh, but there's a chunk of it in the middle that says, uh, basically, Lord, for those who have not yet wakened to their deepest hungers, let this brief service to them be like the opening of a window through which the breezes of a far country might blow, stirring eternal longings to life. I'm going to say that again. Let this brief service to them be like the opening of a window through which the breezes of a far, of a far country might blow, stirring eternal longings to life. That is a good prayer. 
It's a good prayer before every sermon that you preach. Anytime you sit down to write something beautiful or creative or you take the stage, Lord, please let whatever this thing is about to, uh, that I'm about to do be like that, the opening of a window that will awaken the longing in people, that will give them a t- taste of sainsuit, which will be a breadcrumb that leads them to the heart of Jesus. I love that. So, uh, so you catastrophe, that moment in the story uh, can open the door to sainsuit. So the last word that I will, uh, that I love as one of my favorite words is fidelity. It's a bummer that there's this insurance company called Fidelity um, uh, because it makes people think of that immediately. But fidelity is a wonderful, strong sounding word for what it actually means. You know, this idea of faithfulness, long faithfulness, solid, steady faithfulness. Um, it's, a, it's a word that Wendell Berry puts to good use a lot. Uh, Wendell Berry, I don't know if you guys know who that is, but you should. He's great and um, is a poet, an essayist, a novelist, and a farmer here in Kentucky, in Henry County. And uh, he, his books have just been some of the most formative uh, uh, books in my whole life. Um, I would put him with Tolkien and Lewis as one of the... Uh, that, that the board of directors, sort of, <laughs> uh, the, the authors that I love the most. And uh, anyway, he actually has a collection of short stories called Fidelity, and the story Fidelity in the, that collection is one of my favorite of his stories. Um, but he writes a lot about this idea of faithfulness to what, what the Lord has given you. Uh, faithfulness in stewarding what is your own to steward, right? Um, uh, Eugene Peterson has a book called A Long Obedience in the Same Direction, uh, which I think uh, that's a good definition for fidelity. A long obedience in the same direction. It's the kind of life that I want to live. Um, I, uh, I think that the, um, the, a good example of that, um, uh, the, me learning that lesson, uh, was over and over again, actually, is that I was at a Paul Simon concert, uh, his farewell tour. Oh, man, it was probably five years ago, four years ago, or something like that. And, and if you guys don't know Paul Simon, you should know Paul Simon. He's possibly the greatest American songwriter uh, in history. And, you know, wrote Sound of Silence, and the album Graceland is one of the greatest albums ever made, but he's still making music. He just put out a new record, and I think he's 80. And it's experimental and fascinating and, and theologically um, curious. You know, he's always asking questions about God. But Paul Simon's amazing, so please check him out if you haven't. And he uh, was doing his farewell tour at the big arena in Nashville, and I went, and there was a moment where he got up to sing um, Sound of Silence, and um, I was just thinking, holy cow, that's Paul Simon, who in the 60s was writing these songs. And now he's standing on the stage, this little old man, you know, I'm ready, I'm singing my songs for you. And uh, doing this song, and behind him, there was, uh, uh, they put together this montage movie thing. So while he's singing the song, there's all these clips of him over the, over the decades, you know, in these huge moments, concert in Central Park, you know, playing for presidents, playing in Africa, all over the place, this massive thing. And he's in an arena, and then we're singing Bridge Over Troubled Water. And it was just this incredible moment. And I felt in my heart, envy. I was sitting there watching this show thinking, what might have happened if I had not done Christian music, you know? And it's so arrogant of me to even begin to think that I could write a song that would be half that, that uh, influential or whatever. But there was still stirring in me this little weird kind of sense of like, I've never gotten to play in an arena that was this big. What would it be like to have an arena of people singing your song together? And, uh, and I kind of just found myself questioning my, you know, I was horrified at the same time as I was having to admit to myself that that was in there, right? 
Um, and I went home and I told my wife how weird that felt. I was like, oh, I didn't like that. I'm very thankful for what I've been given. But I kind of like had that moment of wondering, like, what would it have been like if I had chosen something else? Um, and the next day I had a show and I was flying so, I don't know, Wisconsin or something to do a concert. And, and most of my career has been playing little churches across America. Um, it's just kind of what I do. Like there are little spikes of bigger, like the Christmas tour is a bigger tour, the Easter tour is a bigger tour. Uh, but a lot of the rooms I play are about like this, you know, a few hundred people in some little church in the middle of nowhere. And, uh, and that's, that's just kind of what I do. And I'm very thankful. I've been, had a long career of doing that. But after the Paul Simon show, watching this massive thing, and then I get on a plane and I'm flying off to do my thing. I happen to be reading uh, this book, perhaps you've heard of it, The Lord of the Rings. <clears throat> and I was, you know, it was like, I, I try to read it every few years, and I happen to be in the section of The Lord of the Rings where, if you remember the, this part, toward the end, when uh, Sam and Frodo are in Mordor, and Shelob the spider has stung Frodo and wrapped him all up. Do you guys remember this? And, uh, and it looks like you know, this is the end of the road. Frodo has died is what it looks like. And Samwise is there alone. And he takes the ring from Frodo's dead body and is, is like, well, I guess I have to do this. Samwise, little, humble, wonderful, fierce, courageous Samwise puts on the ring and the ring begins to tempt him and tempts his heart. And, uh, and so I'm going to read this little passage of what happens inside of Samwise in that moment. It says, wild fantasies arose in his mind. And he saw Samwise the Strong, hero of the age, striding with a flaming sword across the darkened land, and armies flocking to his call as he marched to the overthrow of Barad-dur. And then all the clouds rolled away and the white sun shone, and at his command the Vale of Gorgoroth became a garden of flowers and trees and brought forth fruit. He had only to put on the ring and claim it for his own, and all this could be. In that hour of trial, it was the love of his master that helped most to hold him firm. But also deep down in him lived still unconquered his plain hobbit sense. He knew in the core of his heart that he was not large enough to bear such a burden. Even if such visions were not a mere cheat to betray him, the one small garden of a free gardener was all his need and due. Not a garden swollen to a realm, his own hands to use, not the hands of others to command. Uh, I was so thankful that I read that passage because I was being tempted by the ring at that concert <laughs> the night before. And I had to remember that the garden that the Lord has given me to tend to is these concerts that I do. It's the books that I write. It's these children growing up uh, around me. It's my wife and my children. I don't need to look elsewhere. I don't, I don't want to, with a sweep of my hand, command armies, right? The, the amazing thing about that passage to me is that, that what Samwise wanted was a good thing. Like, it's, it describes him with, a, you know, commanding fruit to come forth and turning this darkened land into this vast garden, right? That is a good thing, but it wasn't Sam's job. Sam's job was to tend his little hobbit garden, to care for what he had been given, Right? Uh, so a good thing can become a bad thing if it is not your thing to do. Fidelity, staying faithful to your garden. Pay attention to what it is that God has given you to do. Try to understand what that thing is and be faithful to it for a really long time. That's fidelity. Uh, it's simple. I believe that what we are called to do, one of the main things that we are called here to do, is to make known the deeds of the Lord. 
in whatever way you can. Uh, make known the deeds of the Lord. Sometimes that's songwriting, sometimes that's sermons, sometimes that's feeding people at a shelter, sometimes that's being an amazing parent. Make known the deeds of the Lord to the people around you. Uh, remember that in some sense, the people around you are the deeds of the Lord. They are spoken into being by his imagination. Uh, that idea of making known the deeds of the Lord is all through scripture, especially in the Psalms. Psalm 96.3, declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous deeds among all peoples. Psalm 9, I will give thanks to you, Lord, with all my heart. I will tell of all your wonderful deeds. Psalm 71, my mouth will tell of your righteous deeds, of your saving acts all day long, though I know not how to relate them all. Psalm 105, oh, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, sing to him, sing praises to him, tell of all his wondrous works, tend to that garden. That, it seems to me, is at least one thing we were put here to do, to bear witness to the manifold wonders of what Jesus has done and is doing. Those wonders can show up in novels, paintings, sonnets and songs, in conversations, restored relationships, acts of justice and mercy, and in physical and emotional healing. They can also be the novels, poems, songs, not just what the novel is about, but the fact of the novel's existence in the sense that against all odds, this thing of beauty made its way into the world. It's also the people making them. Each of us in this room is one of the deeds of the Lord, fearfully and wonderfully made. Sometimes the art is the means through which the Lord does his work. Sometimes the art is the way we bear witness to the work that the Lord is doing. Sometimes it's the painting and sometimes it's the frame. The art can be the work or the witness. One of the reasons I founded the rabbit room was to draw attention to these things, these people and this truth. I believe the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, and that includes the art, the artist, and the audience. So, uh, in closing, we don't have to be afraid of the darkness. Tell a story that demonstrates what we all know to be true, that the world is a profoundly broken place. Not only that, we are profoundly broken people. By owning up to that, we can show the power of the pinprick of light in our hearts and in the heavens. That's you, catastrophe. And when we do it, our work might wake up a longing in people for the coming kingdom, for Christ himself. Our lives can be signposts to the new creation. Look at the gifts you've been given, the community you've been given, the work you've been given to do, and get busy painting your wildest imagining in this world of the world that's to come. And once you set your hand to the plow, keep tilling the soil of the better, truer story. Even when it gets hard, even when you're tired and you feel like it's not doing any good, Fidelity means we plant the seeds. The harvest is God's business. The eucatastrophe of the coming kingdom will appear in his good time, according to his good pleasure. And in the meantime, we yearn for it with sane souked, that inconsolable longing, doing the work he's called us to with fidelity. Eucatastrophe, sane souked, and fidelity. Thank you. <laughs>